Week in Startups is brought to you by LinkedIn. A business is only as strong as its people and every hire matters. Go to linkedin.com slash twist and get a $50 credit toward your first job post. NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy to use cloud platform. Get NetSuite's guide, crushing the five barriers to growth when you go to netsuite.com slash twist. And HubSpot. Join thousands of startups that are growing better with HubSpot for startups. Learn more and get extra benefits for being a Twist listener now at HubSpot.com slash startups slash twist. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome to This Week in Startups. One of the most important things we've done over the past couple of decades is map the planet. Yes, all of the amazing things we've seen become possible because of the smartphone is in part because of mapping. Now, for those of you who are millennials and don't remember, back when you would move to Los Angeles or to any major city, you would stop and you would buy a map. And if you wanted to drive across the country, you would stop at gas stations and there would be physical maps literally next to the gas stations, uh, next to the pumps, and you would take these pumps. And pumps, by the way, were things that put oil in cars and those were dead dinosaurs that burned and allowed cars to drive. Of course, I know some of you don't own cars or have Teslas and drive electric. Um, but this enabled a whole crop of startups, uh, including location-based apps, whether it was Golala or Foursquare um, or Google Maps. Well, our guest today has made it his life's work to create these maps and create value for those people out there who are trying to navigate the real world. He worked as a tech engineer and software engineer at Google back from uh, 2006 to 2012, and he built the infrastructure for Google Earth. Then he went on to Apple. You may have heard of that company, uh, and was the uh, tech lead at Apple and built and launched the 3D buildings for Apple Maps from scratch. And then he was a principal architect at a little company called Baidu. And then he co-founded and became CEO in 2016 of his own company called Deep Map. And he's doing some of the most interesting uh, work in AI and mapping. Welcome to the program, James Wu. Thank you very much to having me here. What uh, an amazing collection of companies you've worked for. Yes, I have spent many years in this industry. Uh, did you... Uh, grow up in America, or are you from another country? No, I grew up. I was born in China. I spent whereabouts uh, uh, in the Mongolia, oh, wow. north part of China. And how did you make this journey from Inner Mongolia to Silicon Valley, and then back to Baidu? So uh, it's actually not bad. Back to Baidu. I was actually working for their uh, U.S. office. Ah, got it. Yeah, I got my uh, when I finished my college study. I was very lucky. Got a full scholarship, and I went to the University of Alabama at Birmingham and continued my PhD study there. Got it. Uh, you went to college though in um, in China. China. Oh, in wow. China, Tianjin University. Really? What did you study there? Computer science. Got it. So you're studying computer science in China. Uh, when was that? The '90s, late '90s, early Nin 2000. Ninety-four to ninety-eight. Got it. That's amazing. So you're studying computer science in China, yeah. and then you get to come to America, yeah. to Alabama of all places. That's an interesting place to land as your first stop in America. Yeah, I like I like uh, Birmingham very much. It's, yeah, uh, it's a very uh, good place to um, to stay. I'll yeah. say. And so, when did you get the inkling that mapping? the world and computers were going to collide. When did you first have that indication that that was important work to do? 
My first job as an engineer, actually, after my uh, PhD study, was working for a map company. Huh. Um, we are building uh, something like Google Earth. That yeah. actually, at that time, we don't have Google Earth yet. Uh, right. But uh, we collect a lot of satellite imagery and visualize them in real time and manipulate those images. Uh, basically, we were able to see the globe and the satellite imagery from God's eye uh, point of view, right? Yeah. So it's really exciting. You can see everything, and it's almost like every day you're flying. Yeah. Something like that. So you, you were able to translate that data into 3D maps of the United States? That was, uh, no, at that time it's just uh, imagery. Just imagery. And just a huge amount of imagery. That was 2003. Yeah. A long time ago. When did Google begin working on mapping, and why did they get it so right? What what was the thing that made Google so dominant? Because before that, we had, and people don't remember this, but you would buy a car. It didn't have GPS, and if you were right. lucky enough, you would spend $800 or maybe then $500 yes. for a Garmin. Yeah. Um, what was it that Google got so right about um, creating maps? I think it started from Google's mission of collecting and indexing all the information they can collect. Right. So geospatial information is absolutely one of the most important piece of uh, data that they would like to collect. And in the early days, they acquired a few uh, startups. Uh, one of the uh, most important one probably is Keyhole that they acquired. Keyhole, yeah. Keyhole. And yeah. then um, from there, it grows into a giant organization inside Google, including Google Earth, Google Maps, Street View, and ground choose a bunch of other pro uh, projects and products inside uh, Google Geo. And it seems like every time uh, one of these big companies gets to work on mapping, they go a little bit faster at recreating the same data set. So Google, Apple wanted to have their own mapping product. They felt that was important for the iPhone. Yeah. And you were there when they were doing that. I mean, you worked on the 3D buildings, I guess, right. uh, in Apple Maps. And that wasn't perfect at the start. Right. But eventually they got it really well done. Is it really easy to build these now, like a, a map of the earth no, and all the streets? No, it's still a challenge. Still a challenge? It's a still, still a challenge. And actually, um, um, even when Google launched their maps, it was not perfect. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, uh, corner cases and regions that we don't have the perfect data mm. to keep the map up to date and keep, get the information right. So, um, Mapping itself is still a very challenging task, even today. Hmm. Um, beside Google and uh, uh, Apple, there's tons of other companies try to build their own maps. There's also uh, different approaches to solve this problem, including uh, OpenStreetMap. Uh, ah, yeah, OpenStreetMap is an open source project yes. that I think Yelp was super involved in because Yelp didn't want to be... I guess Yelp was fighting with Google over certain issues around SEO, and they decided they create their own mapping project. Yeah, there's issues for some big uh, companies using, uh, depending on one single mapping platform. Yeah, what are those issues? that They, they don't want to give the data over to that company? Um, so one of the key facts of mapping is actually if you are using the product, you're mm -hmm. actually helping the product getting better and better. Ah. So that's one of the, um, I'll say, like secret in the industry for us. Uh, when you launch Google Map, it's not perfect at the beginning, but... People keep using it and giving feedbacks, and Google is keep working on it. Uh, so is Apple Maps. They are we're collecting tons of information to help the yeah. get the map better and better. And it's just why 
Uber, Lyft, and Tesla are really interesting companies when it comes to mapping because they actually have millions of cars on the road now. Right. And they have the destination people want to go and the starting point. That's something that other people may not have. That's right. That's right. They have to work on mapping technology themselves yeah. or, you know, work with a strong partner to solve this problem together. Right. So you decided after working on all these things that you'd start your own company. Right. Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit funny because uh, after I left Apple Maps, I thought I'm done with mapping forever. You're done. <laughs> yeah. A decade was enough. All right. I worked for five map companies. Mm. Um, so this is a sixth map company yeah. <laughs> I'm funding myself. Uh, the reason that we, uh, we started this company ourselves is because we realized actually um, there need they need a revolution of mapping technology. Because before, if you look at the maps we made, we made the map for humans, humans. Right, and streets. Drivers yeah. And drivers and navigators, right? So um, in the era of self-driving, the machines need a different type of map. Ah. So that's, and also a different type of service model to mm. get the map and use the map, update the map. They need a different precision, different level of precision, uh, different level of update frequency. Mm. Um, and this thing will be a big challenge for the whole self-driving car industry. Right. So we realize this huge need in the industry and uh, we try to solve this problem for the whole industry. Can you show us a video of the, the work you're doing at Deep Map? And sure. you can, uh, if you're interested in seeing, uh, going to Deep Map's website while he pulls it up, you can go to deepmap.ai. So uh, here's a beautiful opening. Uh, for those of you watching, I'll sportscast it, but uh, what we're seeing here is a localization map of Palo Alto, California, which is probably the most mapped city in the world, <laughs> correct? Yes. <laughs> uh, because this is where everybody lives in the industry, uh, and it's doing a landmark map. And I see a beautiful 3D rendered car, and it has a bunch of lines on the street of where to go. What is that? That is semantic meaning of the uh, street, like lane information, speed limit, traffic signs. And we have both a semantic meaning and the 3D reconstruction, uh, reconstruction of the environment. Ah, so what does that mean in plain English? Why is this important? So um, for a machine map, right, the machine needs to understand both what the environment is mm. and what does that mean and the regulations. So that's a two piece. One piece, the environment is the reconstruction of the uh, environment. The street mm. surface and uh, the buildings and trees, their geometry, distance, ah. uh, this kind of information. It's a clone, digital clone of the environment. The other part is the uh, semantic meaning, like where are the lanes, what's the speed limit, Mm. Where the where are the stop lines? When uh, when the car, how fast the car can drive and where they need to stop? This kind of information, the regulations and the meaning, semantic layer, and all that information can be obtained so many different ways. I know the government produces maps that have the speed limit on it, and then there's also signs. Um, so for just in the example of speed limits, I know when I'm driving my Model Three Tesla. Sometimes when I engage the autopilot, it thinks I'm on a 30-mile-per-hour road when I'm, in fact, on the highway. And this typically happens when I'm entering the 6th Avenue Street exit here in uh, the Soma area. And, and I have to turn off the engagement, drive regular, 
because it's capping out at 30. It thinks I'm on the surface street. How, and that makes sense because I'm on an elevated highway above the surface street and the surface street is in fact 30, but it doesn't know I'm elevated yet. So as I go up the ramp at a certain point, it flips over. How does Tesla do it? How do you handle that kind of edge case? So Tesla's self-driving is a little bit different from right. what we are trying to solve. Uh, their self-driving is probably mostly in level two, level two plus, level three, this kind of category. Yeah, which uh, means I'm giving up to two different aspects of driving to the computer or to the car, but I'm keep, I have to be at the wheel and paying attention. You still need a driver, human right. driver. Human driver, yeah. For, for the other type of self-driving, which we call robotaxi or level four, you don't need to have a human uh, driver in it. And you don't have any, you don't have to have anybody inside it. You can Got just, it. Uh, it's a robot roaming around yeah. by itself, right? So we're targeting that kind of a uh, problem. Mm. And our map, um, it's very precise. We build like uh, five centimeter precision maps. And our localization means uh, localize, find your position inside the map precisely. And our precision of that is less than 10 centimeters. Got it. How do you know the speed limit though? Uh, that's a semantic layer that Got we're it. gonna create from the signs that are on the street, uh, machine learning and the human QA. Uh, a lot of, we have a high, uh, we have a pretty complicated pipeline to generate all these information together. It. All right, when we get back from this quick commercial break, I'm going to ask you the most difficult question, but the one you're most qualified to answer, which is, when will we see fully autonomous, whatever, level five cars, level four cars here in San Francisco, this very city, driving us from San Francisco to, uh, to SFO without a driver, without a steering wheel, when we get back on This Week in Startups. I want to tell you about passive job searchers. These are people who aren't out there looking for a gig right now. However, if the right opportunity was put in front of them, they might engage it. And they might go in for an interview, and then they might actually change jobs. Passive job seekers. They're all over the place in one location. That location is LinkedIn. LinkedIn you know it, I know it, we've all been using it for a decade, and there are hundreds of thousands of businesses now posting jobs to LinkedIn, and we're one of them. In fact, the director of This Week in Startups, Sir Charles, is uh, one of those passive searchers. He was on LinkedIn, he saw an ad for studio director in San Francisco, and he jumped on the opportunity. We're very lucky to get him. And it cost us $140 to place that ad. We got 68 candidates in two weeks, all on LinkedIn, and I want you to get $50 towards your LinkedIn ad. That will pull in passive job seekers. These are brilliant people who don't need a job. They have too many opportunities, but you might be able to just insert yourself there right on LinkedIn and get their attention. Go to linkedin.com slash twist, linkedin.com slash T-W-I-S-T, and you will get $50 towards your first job post. Of course, there are terms and conditions that apply, but you need to know that these uh, incredibly talented people are just sitting there waiting. And, you know, they go on LinkedIn, they get in-mail, and they're, you know, networking and rating their friends and their skills. So they're, they're on LinkedIn, and they got that beautiful feed on LinkedIn where we share video clips and everybody's sharing what they're working on. Well, those people are on LinkedIn waiting for you to tell them about working at your company. And you're going to want to do that by going to LinkedIn.com slash twist and getting the free $50 right now. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. Welcome back to This Week in Startups. I'm your host, Jason Calacanis. My guest today, James Wu, who you don't know, 
They don't know you, but they're going to know you after this, who has been working in maps since maps were being uh, made by technical companies, Google, Apple, Baidu, and now his company, DeepMap.ai. When we left our hero, James, that's you, I asked you the most difficult question. I can't get a straight answer out of people. Everybody says next year, some people say 20 years, but you've been doing this. When do we think we'll have autonomous cars capable of driving us through Soma onto the 101 and dropping us off at SFO with no steering wheel in the car, which I think is like level five, right? Yeah. Um, I think it will take a few years. A few years. Um, okay, now so, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, and also, um, and also that's, uh, that, that question needs to be more specific, right? Okay. Is that one route or any route? Do I'm just going to say that one route. Let's just, just say the route. car was... Uh, all right, let's just say, no, it could be many different routes, but let's just say originating in Soma somewhere and dropping you off uh, at one of the four terminals at SFO. Right. And also, what's the speed limit? Yeah, speed limit is 65. Um, is there any special lanes for self-driving cars? No special lanes. Okay. Good. Then it's a little bit tough. <laughs> it will a take tougher. longer, right? Uh, yeah. The reason I'm asking is because all these actually uh, constraints, if we have more stuff, uh, more help from the regulations, ah. the sensors, and onboard computing, uh, this will make the thing easier to be of course, implemented. Yeah. Right. Because right now... The technology can do it. It just can't do it perfectly. That's right. So let's work our way through, and I'm going to get a specific date from you. I, I won't make you give me like a specific date, just a specific week and year of when <laughs> this is going to work, okay? And then we're going to hold you to it. But um, one thing you said that was interesting is obviously the hardware needs to improve. And then you also mentioned, do you have a dedicated lane uh, for self-driving cars? That's right. Are there cities in the world that have dedicated lanes for cars today, for self-driving cars? And is that something that's being worked on by cities? Um, I heard there's uh, places that they actually paint uh, virtual um, rails on wow. the ground, virtual rails, like a, they just paint on the ground, right? Got and then the car just follow it. So that's something doable already. And okay. some city is doing it. Really? Yes. Any in America or is this like a thing in China I or mean, some other somewhere places? Somewhere in China, I remember. Yeah. But I don't remember the exact city name. But Got they it. were testing a bus. Actually, they painted the rail on the on the ground huh. and uh, um, self-drive the bus. So, so solving self-driving could be as easy as painting a thick <laughs> line in the middle of one lane. With barcodes. <laughs> <laughs> With a QR code. Right. But this is part of the reason. See, now we're laughing about this, um, but the technology is such that I can tell you, having driven self-driving uh, up and down the 280 basically every day for the past four years, I have seen the Tesla cars learn where the paint is. And in areas where the paint is not specific, you can literally see the computer on the heads-up display a little bit confused and then mm -hmm. figuring it out. Um, so if we actually had a line painted in the right-hand lane or the left-hand lane or in all the lanes, how much better would self-driving be today? It will be much better, I will say. Like the perception system, so it's all about reliability and uh, uh, and. The environment is changing, right? Your car cannot always see the, even if you have a painting, 
they may not always be able to see it because of because uh, of other cars uh, blocking you view. Right. right, there's a truck, a bus in front of you. Got you it. Don't so see you might much. be able to see, yeah, a little bit of the line. And right. then the other thing here in San Francisco is Carl the Fro the fog. We right. actually have fog. Yeah. And that can reduce visibility. And also your camera may have issues. There might be bird poop on it. <laughs> yes, the bird poop issue is very <laughs> right. important. Yes. So fog, or dirt. Uh, yeah, dirt, uh, all these things. So it's actually very, very challenging. That's actually part of the reason we have to have very good maps. Mm. So the map will not be blocked by a bus in front of you, mm. right? Even your camera doesn't work, the map is still there. You actually know where you're supposed to be and what's supposed to be around you. Because of GPS or because of the combination of GPS with the video of the real world? It's, com uh, it's a combination of uh, everything, including GPS, IMU, and uh, other sensors. Explain what IMU is for the audience. IMU is uh, something like inside the phone you're using to measure the acceleration, the like movement yeah. of, your, uh, of your phone. Right. The cars can have that as well. Yeah. And so if we had those lines painted, the current hardware would be much more stable, you think? Um, painting the line is one solution, right? Yeah. Uh, it's a, Actually, in my opinion, it's a relative cheap uh, way of uh, getting a big boost, in my opinion. Um, but there's other places you just can't paint lanes and you want your solution to be more generic. You Why don't... can't you paint lanes? I'm curious. Um, what would be an example of that? Parking lot, maybe? And also, even you paint the lanes, you have to maintain the painting. Uh, okay, so the, the... Right. Yeah, so there you could paint everywhere. That would you be Because we already paint everywhere. Yes, we you paint can. the We just put the lines in the wrong spot. <laughs> because we do have the lines on either side of the car. We just don't have it under the car. Uh, which, which is, is where fine. it should be. Which is fine. On the, we, we actually, most of the uh, level two and uh, level three uh, features of self-driving cars today, they actually f do the lane keeping and the yeah. lane following. So um, we are actually already using some of the paintings already. Mm. Yeah. Um, the problem is actually is reliability and safety. Mm. So how safe we can make the self-driving car in all kind of crazy conditions? What if the painting is not visible? Yes, no. Right. Uh, and, and also the world is changing. If you look a small region of a map, it doesn't change much. Mm. But if you look the, a huge region, it's actually every moment there's something is changing on this region. Right. That's uh, some experience we learn when we build large-scale maps. Got so it. The, the thing's alive. You have to keep track of all the changes. Who is your customer then? Do you have customers yet? Or are you just building this and you know that people, if you build a really good model of the world that's down to that centimeters, there will be a customer for this data? We do have customers. Uh, we have actually quite a few customers. Um, we have some public announced customers, including Ford, uh, Honda, SEIC, and uh, we recently just announced two new customer in ride a Swedish uh, self-driving truck company huh. and uh, Rysel, a local self-driving uh, car company. Uh, we have we actually have quite some um, customers and partners. So uh, if you look at the self-driving car stack, almost all the self-driving car company they need to build maps. Mm -hmm. This is actually another reason we start a company because I we realize there's a huge amount of reinvent wheels happening in the industry. Right. Elon is building his own 3D <laughs> model of the world, right? He's building his own map company. Uber, I think, is building their own. There's quite a few companies yeah. doing yeah. this. Well, we understand the self-driving car technology is a very challenging 
uh, task, engineer task, right? Mm. Uh, well, if everybody's reinventing wheels, doing something, then the other part is nobody is working on, or you don't have enough uh, resource yeah. allocated to do sort that. Sort of like your AWS, like Amazon Web Services. Yes. You, yes. If you don't have to worry about putting up a Linux server or, pu or putting up storage, right? now the developers can work on the next task. Exactly. And you can just service everybody. How do exactly. you charge them? Do you charge them per mile driven? Do you charge them per car? Do you charge them a, a flat fee? Do you negotiate it every time? Consumption-based, flat rate? How do you do it? Uh, you know, we're a startup. We're very flexible. But yeah. down the road, we we uh, we believe this will be a service. It's mm. a SaaS model. Yeah. Um, and uh, transportation will become a SaaS as well. Mm. Like transportation as a service, right? Yeah. So basically, uh, it will be a portion of the cost of running the self-driving car service mm. well you don't have the driver but you need to pay for the machines onboard computing power and mm. cloud processing and all these uh checking right map making we talked so, before about hardware is the hardware uh do we have more than enough hardware and processing power available to cars let's say for you know a thousand dollars uh or maybe let's say two thousand dollars for two thousand dollars which is you know, less than 10% uh, of the cost of even the cheapest car. Do we have more than enough technology and processing power to do self-driving, or do we have to wait another cycle, do you think? Or do we need to spend more on that in terms of GPUs? You, you feel like we're already there? Because I saw that some of the, putting aside processing, I saw that there are LiDAR units now, that that was supposed to be super expensive, but now you can get like $800 LiDAR kits. Is that true? Uh, it's the lidar price is dropping dramatically, and there's um, different generation of technologies coming up as well. And the, the price is dropping every year. It's amazing. Actually, yeah. we made some predictions before we started the company about the uh, uh, lidar price is actually dropping almost as the same speed we predicted, or even faster. Wow. So, so what is it at now? Just give the audience a ballpark. If if ten years ago it was costing fifty thousand to put that on, I think it was fifty thousand to put it on the top of a of 80, a Waymo. Eighty thousand probably. Eighty thousand for 80, Waymo before, cars. Yeah, the Google uh, self-driving cars. Right. That's the what's the Valentine uh, lidar sixty-four beam, but I think today, uh, like the thirty-two beam or equivalent sensors, probably you can get one uh, around like one eighth or one tenth of the cost of before. Wow. So it's it's dropping dramatically. Ten thousand dollars or something. Yeah, yeah, around that ballpark. And when it's doing that, it's shooting all those lasers out into the world and building a real time model of the world. Yes. So if a child runs into the street chasing a ball, you're going to see the ball running into the street and the child. Yes. And that's not on your map or any map. That's a, 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 a that's a dynamic object. That's a dynamic object. And we know it's not on uh, on the map. Yeah, that's important. Right. I, I had um, a company, Samosource, on the podcast. And they do, you know, people in Africa are looking at maps and, and doing like boxes and stuff like that and like sort of organizing what they see on the map. Humans assisting in this process. Do you use humans to assist building these worlds or is it all done with algorithms and computer imaging? We use imaging? humans. Yeah. Uh, we, don't, we don't trust the machine that much yet. Yeah. <laughs> because this is uh, critical for safety. If there's anything wrong on the, um, on the map, uh, it will be uh, a huge deal potentially. Hmm. So uh, we treat safety uh, very, uh, very seriously. And what is the difference in, in terms of GPS's role in all this? Because, you know, we were, I think a lot of consumers believe GPS is super important in all of this. If the GPS satellite were to go out or you were to lose GPS connection, self-driving would continue uh, in the future without any problems? 
Uh, I think GPS is also uh, still a very important uh, sensor for the self-driving cars. It's a uh, um, however, there's some limitations to GPS technology today, right? Uh, first, like their precision is not that high. Um, if you want to get really centimeter level high precision, there's a lot of requirement and processing needed. And also, uh, the GPS signal is not always available. Right. Um, right. It can be easily, especially inside the city, canyon, yeah. or in the mountains. Uh, there's a lot of uh, um, uh, trees blocking the signal. Mm -hmm. So it's not always there. So GPS is one good source of information, but it's not everything. You need mm. to have other things um, to safely loca uh, locate the car, to let the car know where it is mm. precisely. All right, when we get back, I want to ask you, what is the hardest challenge that you face today in making these models of the world? Because it feels like things are pretty easy, but I want to know what keeps you up at night and... A follow-up question, when would you let your kids drive in that self-driving car from Soma to SFO Airport? You'd put your own child in there and not worry about it. And when you would, if you had the choice, actually, I'm going to rephrase the question. I want you to tell me if you had a human driver and a self-driving car and you had to put your child in one, what year would you feel more comfortable putting your child in the self-driving car when we get back on This Week in Startups? NetSuite by Oracle. Yeah, shared spreadsheets, mutual manual processes and legacy systems costing you tons of time. It's a disaster. But NetSuite by Oracle is the business management software that you need to handle every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. It's going to save you time and money uh, and unneeded headaches by managing all your sales and finance and accounting as well as orders, human resources, all right from your desk or even your phone. Thousands of the best known brands and fastest growing companies use NetSuite by Oracle to manage their business. And now it's available to you. And the world's most popular cloud management system is more affordable than you think. So don't think that this is out of reach. So here's your call to action right now. NetSuite is offering you valuable insights to overcome the obstacles that are holding you back for free. You can unleash your business's full potential with this free guide. I got it here. I printed it out. Crushing the five barriers to growth. You know what they are. Finding your next customer, increasing profits, cash flow, visibility. That's one you might not know about. Tackling regulations, super important. And building a winning team. You can get this guide right now by going to netsuite.com slash twist netsuite s-u-i-t-e dot com slash twist go there now and get crushing the five barriers to growth it's a great report and you're going to get a lot out of it okay welcome back to the podcast i'm jason calacanis you can follow me on instagram i am just at jason instagram.com slash jason and there you will see me traveling the world and eating peking duck and other incredible dishes at peking duck three out of four Day, three out of five days in uh, really? in Hong Kong. It's my favorite dish. They're like, you want to speak in this country, this country, or this country this month? And I'm like, mm, Peking duck. I want to speak in this country. <laughs> I want to speak in Hong Kong. But boy, is it amazing over there. Yes. China going to leapfrog America in terms of self-driving because they have the ability for the government to make super fast decisions? That's what people tell me. Uh, I'm not sure about that. It's def definitely a, a very efficient decision-making process, and there's absolutely strong support from the government side, yeah. from my understanding. I think that's very helpful for the industry there. Mm. So you think it'll happen there faster? 
uh, it's moving absolutely very fast. Uh, yeah. But you know, there's also a lot of other things, uh, advantages that Silicon Valley and other places has. Yeah, tell uh, us. Like uh, the um, uh, talents and mm. the AI um, and also um, infrastructure. There's mm. a bunch of other advantages. Got it. Show us another exciting video. I, I found these videos fascinating and you can hit the pause button when you see something interesting in the video. Um, and, I, and I have the questions I was going to ask you queued up as well. But I, I feel like when we watch these videos, we're going by them a little bit fast. So I want to pause on one of them and you can tell us what's going on here. So here we are. We're going down a street. We see a bunch of um, a 3D model of the world, including down to the trees and the leaves. Right. This is, uh, this is a 3D uh, reconstruction of the street we uh, created. You can see clearly see the color on the ground. Um, and it's actually a 3D model. We drive the street up and up and down a couple of times, and then we can create this. Then we can view it from any angle we like to. Mm. And you do this with one of those cars with all the sensors on it? Right. Got it. We use a bare minimum set of sensors to make this kind of a map. And uh, what, is, what is the detail level that you need to create uh, a map that is capable of being safer than a human? Do you feel we've already done that? Are we already safer than humans? So, um, I don't think the self-driving car system is safe. Uh, so it's depend on uh, which which one you're talking to, right? Uh -huh. There's a plenty of company working on this. We are we're not making the whole thing. We're just making the mapping right. and localization piece. Mm. It's a very important piece, but it's not everything. The whole thing, yeah. We needed the whole thing to work very tightly, and you have enough redundancy at every level to guarantee the safety of a self-driving car system. Ah, the redundancy is key. So if you lose GPS or if you lose still a camera. Works, still works. Not okay. doing anything crazy. <laughs> the car is still running or, you know, safely handle this kind of situation. And, and what's going to happen in the future if we're all sleeping in our car and it loses a camera at the same time that a GPS signal goes out for some reason? What will happen? Your alarm will go off to take over or it just pulls over to the side of the road and flashes its flashers? What, what is the protocol, you think? Uh, I believe that eventually there will be remote controllers of uh, operators of this vehicle's emergency and uh -huh. uh, human interference is necessary when situations happen. So something unexpected happens and you'll basically hit, uh, an alarm will go off and in some boiler room there'll be a hundred drivers sitting there taking over and saying this is your remote driver everything's going to be fine i'm pulling you over <laughs> to the next starbucks yeah. would you like a latte like it's going to be that simple it's uh it's probably not that uh, similar to that i think it's mm. like uh basically uh you, you this is like a, my imagination so uh when you have a car actually not working and you know it's pulled over and the remote control will try to jump in and f figure out what's what went wrong, or maybe they'll send another car come over and pick up, mm. pick up you, uh, or the stuff. I asked you before the break, what's the hardest part of your job right now? What's the piece that you just can't figure out yet? Because it's pretty obvious that you'll be able to build these three D models. Waymo has one, Tesla's building their own, and you're going to build one for everybody else to share. That's an interesting uh, way to look at this because Google had their own cloud, Amazon shared theirs, everybody builds their own cloud, and then some people choose to share them. But what is really hard for you right now? Um, what, what are the pieces of this that are just really difficult? 
for the self-driving car technology itself is very, very uh, challenging. Mm. It's a very big uh, pile of work. Uh, I think for us, even for the HD map making, it's also a, still a very big uh, problem as well, because you, not only you're going to need to make the map super precise, super fresh, super reliable, and uh, you know the cost has to be affordable. You can't have like a 100K LiDAR today, right? Because nobody can afford it. It's more expensive than Tesla. <laughs> right? Yeah. So you need to have the LiDAR unit cheaper. Same problem for the mapping. Mm. We need to make the map good and affordable. Huh. And, uh, uh, and we, uh, we need to serve different customers and they have different uh, stacks. Mm -hmm. They use different software, they use, even use different sensors. So it's actually a quite complicated environment. We need to do a very good job to do abstraction and do the customization and the integration with our customers Got to it. get to that level of uh, safety and reliability. What's the approximate rollout of this? Will you have the whole country in 10 years, five years? How long is it going to take you to do just the United States? So that's actually a misunderstanding of the mapping business we're doing than the traditional map business. Ah. We don't have to map the whole country today mm. because even if we map it, you don't have the self-driving car driving everywhere. Mm. Well, for the machine map, it's not a map data dump anymore. It's a part of the self-driving car's brain, mm. handling mapping and the localization and memory and mm. prior knowledge of the environment. So it's it's a part of the brain. It's not uh, a data database anymore. Ah. So if you want to send your car to a different place, we'll map it there together with your car when your car Got is there. It. So we are a Silicon Valley company, but we're mapping in Canada, Japan, and uh, Sweden, Europe, other places already. Got it. And so your customers will be feeding you back. Part of the deal is if this company in Sweden that's doing the trucking company or Norway, I'm not, I'm not sure what you said, Sweden, Sweden that trucking company, part of their agreement with you is you give them your system, but they'll feed you back data. And then the next company gets to feed back data as well. And everybody benefits. If there is a, a sign missing for an exit or you know some construction going on or a huge pothole, you're going to be able to sh have that data fed back to you. It's, uh, it's not really like that yet. So we actually provide the mapping and localization capability mm. to the self-driving car companies. Right. So it's their data. Mm. and their map. That's one of the major difference between us and the traditional map makers. We yeah. don't have to own the data. Ah. It's our customer's data, and it's very customized map for our customer. Mm. So uh, their map may not be the same for another customer, mm. and very often it's completely different. Actually. Wouldn't they want to share data, though? Because if we're all driving the 280, and you know company A you know, sees some really challenging issue there where GPS cuts out during a certain part or there's potholes or the lines are not clearly labeled or some line merges and it's it's not perfect. Wouldn't they want to share that with each other? Yes, they want to share data. But as I mentioned, for self-driving cars, it's not about data anymore. It's like a functionality and uh, a part of the brain. So it's not sharing data. It's mm. sharing the memory and uh, the functionality related with uh, with that part of the brain. Got it. So there's no standard of self-driving technology today. Mm. And there's not even a standard of the sensor kits. Shouldn't there be a standard? Is anybody working on that? Shouldn't we standardize some of this? Um, yes and no, right? Uh, standard is take a long time and also mm. depend on the application. When you do drive highways, it might need different type of sensors. When you do local and different applications, 
you need a different type of standards. Mm. So it's take a while for people to develop the technology and get to a point that we can build a standard. Wow. So it's sort of like, whatever, 30 years ago in the computing business when there weren't even HTML standards or there weren't database standards or open source databases. Yeah. Like everybody's recreating the wheel every time. Right. I still remember when we have the computers like every computer has to be uh, labeled IBM compatible or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> so yeah. Um, I think down the road, there will be some kind of standard showing up, huh. but it will take how long, we don't know. Okay. So you mentioned like what kind of uh, challenges keep me up to uh, up up at night, right? Uh, I actually sleep very well. Okay. <laughs> so, awesome. um, but uh, the thing that we don't really know is how long the self-driving car thing will take off. Mm. And it seems it's, it's uh, happening very fast, but still it's like one year or three year or five year or 10 year, we don't know. Because there's so many different applications of self-driving car technologies. Yeah. Uh, now everybody's using a Roomba in their home, like- Roomba, yeah, 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 the, yeah the, right? the vacuum. The vacuum yeah. robot, right? Uh, but you know, that take off very quickly. Hmm. Uh, it's very likely some of the self-driving car applications might take off it's very specific applications. You like truck driving. You know, truck driving. Or, that makes you know, total sense. Utility vehicles or uh, slow moving things. Right. Well, uh, delivery. So we don't know about that. Huh. We just want to, whatever that happens, we want to provide the best mapping and localizing technology mm. and with a fraction of the cost so people don't reinvent wheels and we can support this kind of a huge fleet operations. It's an incredible vision. You've raised $92 million from some of the best investors in the business, including Andreessen Horowitz and uh, Excel and NVIDIA. Yeah, involved. we're very, very lucky. <laughs> yeah, you, you got a war chest there. Uh, okay, so we'll end with this. The difficult question. When would you, James Wu, you have kids? Yes, I have two. Okay, so boy and a girl? Or a girl and boy. Girl and boy, okay. Yeah. Uh, so when would you allow your precious daughter that you love so much and your son to get in a self-driving car to go to school over a human driver doing the same route? What year will that happen, do you think? Give me your best guess. It's 2019 at the recording of this, the beginning of 2019. Here we live in the Bay Area. What year do you think it'll feel like a no-brainer? You have a choice to let... A driver take them or the computer take them, you would say, I would not put my child in a car with a human driver. I would only put them in a car with a self-driving car. What year do you think that will be? Um, do, this do, is really do, do. hard. Yeah. Uh, for me, I think it will take a few years. It's not three years. Uh, it's okay. probably less than 10 years. Okay, so between three and seven, three and 10. Three and 10. So okay. it's definitely not within three years. I right. don't believe the technology will be that robust yet. Mm. Um, and also there's, as I mentioned, a lot of constraints. If yeah. we have, have something like, okay, no other car can be on the street except it's a yeah, self-driving car, yeah. right? And it's going 15 <laughs> miles an hour. <laughs> right, then, I want my children driven at 15 miles an hour. I want a bicycle to pass them. Right. Yes. So, I think that's, you speak for all parents. And yeah. also, you know, I think one of the major difficulty in the self-driving car industry is not about the self-driving car itself. Mm. It's about the other drivers. Yeah. And they have no patience waiting for a self-driving car. They, they rush. You know, they yeah. don't. They observe the red light. They just run over it. Right. So, right. so six point five years. 
is when you would probably do it. I'm going to split the three and the ten. See what I did there? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, there's also some uh, regulation needs to make sure, you know, you can't have like jaywalkers on the street all the time. Yeah, this is what I, I mean. People, uh, when you're in Hong Kong or any city that's pretty crowded, Japan as well, in Tokyo, they have a fence that's too tall to hop over so that you don't walk in the street, separating humans from cars. And we're here in California and other places, and we don't have those. It's so dumb. Those solve 90% of the problem. And also when you're in a dense city like Hong Kong or, or Tokyo, they don't let humans walk in front of cars and trust that they're going to stop. They have bridges that go over the main avenues. And here we don't have that. Right. Um, so that's that's another point I want to make is it's, it's not a, like one or two company or like few self-driving car company working on this. The yeah. whole world is working on self-driving cars. Yeah. There's people working on infrastructure, new type of infrastructure, new type of street sensors on the street, IoT, V2X. Um, What's V2X? V2, uh, vehicle to anything, communication, ah, right? Got it. Your car will be able to talk to the traffic lights yeah, and yeah. stop sign. They can recognize each other mm. and syncing. Right. So I think, and also regulations and policies, insurance companies, new yeah. type of insurance company jumping out, yeah. covering up whatever happens. Mm. This is pushing the thing happening faster than from a pure map perspective mm. or a pure sensor lidar perspective yeah. or per perception perspective. It's, it's a it's a it's a multiple part moving towards the getting the same goal. So it. I would not surprise if like three or five years, uh, three years later, we can have something like that yeah. happening. I'm not surprised at all. Yes, yeah, that'd be super interesting. I think some city in America needs to be super bold and put fences to fence in the pedestrians and save them and draw and paint the lines yeah. and then say to the self-driving folks, yeah. it could be Austin or Phoenix, anybody with a grid. Right. And say, listen, it's going to be very hard for somebody to jump in front of a car. Right. And build bridges over the main thoroughfares. I mean, that's right. a no-brainer. Can you imagine in China or Tokyo, these dense cities, like if they didn't have those fences or bridges, like people would be dying constantly. The cars can't hit people in those cities because the, the humans and the cars don't interact. That's right. They're not allowed right. to. That's right. So there's a, there's a lot of things we can do to make this thing happening faster. And also... If we start rolling some region to test this, and also maybe lanes for self-driving cars only, uh, this will help us to collect more data, yeah. corner cases, and actually train the uh, brain of the self-driving car better. I'm going to, um, as my first act as mayor of San Francisco, I am going to make the 280 self-driving only. That's awesome. But that's mainly because I know people don't have self-driving cars, and I do. And <laughs> I would like no. But imagine if we did that. If we just had 101 could have both, 280, only self-driving. And then everybody on the 280 would be like, whoa, I can go faster and I can be driven. It would create this amazing opportunity for people to just zip up and down the peninsula on the 280. Yeah, this is like what happened to the electric vehicles, right? We have them like had stickers, they can take the carpool lane. Yeah. And that's a, that was a huge incentive for many of my... Uh, uh, my friends. Yeah, like they all bought... founder right? Yeah, they Mark, all bought Priuses and yeah, Teslas. Uh, my co-founder only buys electric cars, and he has the stickers. He yeah. can take the yeah. take the carpool lane all the time. All right. Well, listen, James, continued success with DeepMap. If you're a developer and you want to work on saving lives and helping us all be able to sleep on the way to work and play video games and our incredible future in self-driving, uh, level four and five, uh, you can help. 
by joining DeepMap. So if you're a developer, this is a good place to work, I think. Go ahead and visit DeepMap.ai. They've got plenty of jobs open over there, and they just raised a ton of money. I think it's going to be a unicorn. Okay, stick with us. We've got uh, some great content coming next. Let me take a moment to tell you about HubSpot, which we use and love here at launch. You're probably uh, guessing there's a theme here. We only invite people to be partners on this program if we love their product or one of our portfolio companies loves it because uh, we don't want to ever tell you to consider using these products if we don't stand behind them. And HubSpot is when we stand behind because I had the founder on the podcast uh, in year one. And HubSpot has had an amazing run as a startup and they have a new project. Um, actually, Actually, this has been around for a couple of years now that I think about it. HubSpot for startups. And this program will help startups grow faster and scale. It's super cool and it includes a ridiculously steep discount on the HubSpot growth platform. And all of y'all want to grow up to 90% off startup education and programming and access to HubSpot's integrations at a startup-friendly cost. Thousands of startups are already using HubSpot sales, marketing, uh, and services software and learning from mentors associated with HubSpot for startups. I want you to go to HubSpot.com slash startups slash twist. That URL again. That URL again. HubSpot.com slash startups slash twist. And if you use that link, you will be entered into a free ticket to HubSpot's 24,000 person live event inbound, which is September 3rd to 6th. Uh, this year, 2019, in Boston. Go to Boston. It's a lovely time to be in Boston. Uh, September 3rd to 6th, 2019, in Boston. Uh, I may be there. Uh, HubSpot's 24,000-person live event, Inbound. You're going to get that uh, entered into that free drawing. And they do a great job. We use it here for CRM. It's fast. It's intuitive. It's robust. It's HubSpot. And go get that HubSpot for startups at HubSpot.com slash startup slash twist. Okay, welcome back to This Week in Startups. We're doing a new style of show. We're constantly challenging our team here, Emmy Award-winning producer Jackie, Sir Charles, and nephew Nick on the program. We're all trying to make the show better and better for y'all. And one of the ways we're going to do that is by challenging the team to come up with new segments and ideas. You're all going crazy for the return of Guess the Fake Startup. Uh, it's been a huge hit. And we hope you like this new innovation, Office Hours with J-Cow, J-Dog in the hizzy. Uh, welcome to Office Hours with J-Dog. Eric, how are you? Very well. Hey, are you J-Dog. nervous? A little bit. Very okay. excited. You're excited and nervous. Good. I like it. Your company is Swaggle. People can go see that at Go Swaggle, S-W-A-G-G-L-E. And you're a marketplace for men's fashion resale. Think Poshmark plus Tinder for men. Um, so you allow me to take my old uh, Armani blazer yep. that I bought five years ago and I'm not in love with anymore and I paid whatever, 600 for, 800 for, and put it on your marketplace for how much do you think? For about $150, $200. Got it. And I usually just give that to charity, so I might be able to make a little cheddar. Exactly. Okay. And how long have you been running the Swaggle Marketplace? For about a year. And we run a beta from July to November. And uh, where are you based? We're based in Washington, D.C., as well as Los Angeles. Great. And you came out here for office hours? Yes. Oh, wow. Well, that's very flattering. Thank you for doing that. You're very special. Uh, My mom keeps telling me that. (laughs) I I, I guess it's true. Thanks, Mom. All right, Eric, what is your biggest challenge with... Swaggle, goswaggle.com. Our, our biggest challenge, I know, you know you're the mar- marketplace expert, is really to balance the supply demand. Mm-hmm. In, uh, for us in particularly, is how do we find the relevant sellers so that we can successfully match them with the buyers? Mm. 
Um, and that's our really big Great. challenge. So you need sellers. We need sellers. Got it. Very simple. Um, there is a friction here for sellers. The friction, if you can remove friction for sellers, they will embrace your marketplace and you can lock them in. So when Airbnb needed people, one of the uh, needed hosts, one of the gating factors was beautiful photos. So they would send somebody out to take beautiful photos, right? And when Uber needed drivers, one of the gating factors was them having a car. So getting them a car to drive for Uber X was a key issue. Um, now, in Uber's case, my understanding, I actually heard this secondhand, so I don't have it with my firsthand knowledge, um, they would buy supply from existing car companies. So they would go to a new city and they'd tell a cab company, um, hey, can we buy this many hours from you, right? So you could sort of artificially do that. I don't think you need to do that, but you could go find people who have larger collections and say, may we come to your house on consignment, take photos of everything, and then we will sell them or donate them to charity if you have 10 pieces or more and you will at least get the write-off and we'll send you the note for the write-off. And then you would be clearing out my closet for me. And so you pay somebody 20 bucks who would normally be, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, an on-demand worker to mm. work for you and say, we want to clean out your closet. Uh, who's that woman, Maria? Um, Marie Kondo. Yeah, so you say, hey, did you watch Marie Kondo? Did you read this book? We will come to your house and do that for you for free. Right? Mm -hmm. So that would be a crazy hack because you can trade off of her name. Mm -hmm. Be careful, like marketing-wise. But if you could say, hey, if you are trying to tidy up, we'll come to your house and you can pay us $300 as a consultant for the day or we... And we will take your existing stuff and sell it for you. And if we make any money, we'll split it with you. Very you interesting. Back. Can I ask a follow-up? Yeah, question? please. So, I'm just brainstorming here. I'm spitballing. Yeah. So what, one gross hack that we've done is we've partnered with brick-and-mortar consignment shops to help them sell. Yeah, I was going to bring that one too. How's that gone? It, it was working well because we, you know, we, we got a lot of supply yet on the consumer side because each consignment shop has sort of segmented inventory. So it confuses the consumer, consumer exactly where we're selling. Are we yeah. selling the Armani suit that you are selling or like a su Supreme shirt, some like a millennial selling? Yeah, I, I like the idea of you finding a new channel. The problem with using one of those channels is those are savvy people. Yeah. And they're, you're competing with them. And so while you might get a bunch of inventory, they might give you subpar inventory and it's not proprietary deal flow. Exactly. Uh, my business here in the in, in the Silicon Valley is to have proprietary deal flow, right? Like, mm -hmm. so that's why we do this podcast is to get proprietary deal flow. I'm meeting you. Yeah. Your proprietary deal flow for me. I didn't get you to come visit here through some VC I know. Yeah. You came here because you watched the podcast or maybe you yep, applied to Founder University, something like that. You're obviously a man of refined taste. <laughs> uh, and so uh, iTunes reviews waiting. Uh, okay. uh, I'm not saying that we're going to give you a This Week in Startups t-shirt if you review us on itunes but i'm not saying i won't okay I most, most likely will yes yeah that would be your choice and your choice alone but if i saw a great review i might after you sell i might autograph a book on swaggle <laughs> i will sell a suit on swaggle i got a lot of old suits i'm looking to get out of there but i think actually going after that high-end group and saying um use the marie Kondo method to end make money 
is a really interesting one. You got to be very careful using another person's name. So what you might say is, have you seen Maria Kondo's special? Do you want to tidy up? Mm -hmm. And then put a disclaimer. We're not affiliated with Maria Kondo, but we believe in her vision and we want to help you tidy up. One of our experts will come and tidy up for you and take your stuff and sell it and then charge for it and see if you can say tidying up expert doing the Marie Kondo method $300 a day. Because mm -hmm. I know my wife, when we were doing this reorganization was, and we moved houses, was looking for somebody like that. And what we basically did was we just had a friend of ours who was looking for some work. Uh, we gave her the job of doing it and we told her, read the book and we're going to do this process. And she read the book and we did the process. And it was really good for us because we looked at stuff and we're like, do we love it or not? Do we need it? Or we got, you know, got rid of it. So that could be the ultimate hack. But that's what you want to do is start thinking of hacks the same way Airbnb did and test them and see which one works. You might actually get people to pay you to put inventory on it. Mm -hmm. That would be incredible. So let's say if we do that, we've solved the supply problem, right? Right. On the, sub, uh, on the demand side, how, what type of content should we create to really understand our CAC? Yet we know that we have a two-sided marketplace. Like mm -hmm. from an investor perspective, we're, at, we're still at the product market fit phase. Yeah. How much do we go all in from a like marketing? Because once you get started, you yeah. can't stop, right? What I would do is I would make landing, I would figure out what the most desired resale products are. So if I were to ask you, what would be the top three categories for resale products? Would sneakers be part of that? Would blazers, would dress shoes, belts, what would they be? In general, it's probably sneakers, but we're targeting more to the more of the young professional demographic, okay. so like shoes, like dress shoes. Okay, you think dress shoes, shoes people uh, want yes. to, to resell? Yeah. Okay, so if you know that the sneakers are part of it, one hack you could do is figure out which sneakers are the most desired. So if we just look at sneakers for a second, which three sneaker brands are most desired? You know, Adidas, Easy Included, Air Jordan, Nike. Perfect. So here's what you do. You go buy 20 pairs of each of those. You make the most gorgeous landing page. You create fake accounts selling them. I would never say create fake accounts. Never do anything that is unethical. Create fake accounts. Uh, and you make those fake accounts. I never make fake accounts, okay? No, no fake everything. accounts. You make accounts. I don't never do that. But anyway, <laughs> accounts show up on your site with 20 pairs of Jordans. You then make a landing page that you say, we're selling a collection of Jordans. We have 17 different pairs. And I need to move them today at under market rates. And you place that on Craigslist. Okay. And you send okay. them to that landing page. You then sell those for less than you bought them for or the same. And now you've created activity on your site. People have to create a login. People have to send the money. Then they tell their friends about it. And you basically manufacture that first bit of interaction. And that requires some of like inventory acquisition. Yeah, so you just put that in your cost of doing business. You say, seeding the marketplace. So if you were start, if I was starting a competitor to Uber, I would go to the airport and I would put people in t-shirts that said, you know, J-Cal, you know, uh, limos or whatever, yeah. you know, J-Cal, uh, what's the, uh, EVs, whatever. And our spin is we're only electron, electric vehicles, you know. Mm -hmm. And I would literally hand people a card that said free ride or $1 ride anywhere within 50 miles of Los Angeles. One mile ride, one mile ride. All we ask is that you tweet it or share it on social media, um, an open account. 
those people then do it, right? And that's those that's that seeding where you lose money on those mm -hmm. first couple of transactions, but you get people who might be very loyal customers in the future. Mm -hmm. So with Cafe X here in San Francisco, they did a bunch of different experiments. So I'm not talking out of school here. Many people experience them where if you if you downloaded the app, they would give you a free coffee or five dollars worth of coffee. Well, if a coffee costs three fifty and there's a dollar fifty left, well, you have to then top off your account with another dollar fifty to get the other coffee. Right, so there's all kinds of experiments you can run like that, but I like the experiment of finding something that's super desirable, having an interesting array of it, and then trying to hit people onto that landing page and see if you can get people to actually transact. Mm -hmm. um, you could do it with shoes as well. Like once you, if you know that there's a real resale value to Danner boots, which last forever, or Crockett and Jones, those are the two brands I wear. Crockett and Jones is the you know that one, the, it's the oldest shoe manufacturer in London. Their shoes okay. cost eight hundred dollars, but they're going to last twice as long as ones you buy for 400. So the way quality. I look at it is you're getting these incredible quality ones. But I was actually thinking if I could sell these for 200, I'd put it towards the purchase of a new one after three or four years. Mm -hmm. And they probably would have a, a, be a better deal than buying a new one pair for 400. Mm -hmm. So I would really experiment with that. Because mm -hmm. so, right now you don't know if men want to do this and to what extent. Yes. So I would try to understand that as well. Right. right. Then do, should we start charging now? Because our ultimate revenue model is a commission. Right. Yeah, I I, it's fine to charge the commission structure. What do you think your take is going to be? Ten percent? Eight to ten percent. The Perfect. more you sell, the less. Do you think we should do that right off the bat? I would just do ten percent. I don't think anybody's going to begrudge you it because you're up against consignment shops that take half. Yeah. Is that their normal take? Half? Yeah. Forty or fifty. The other thing you can do is maybe do a micro storefront. So there's a trend in retail of micro storefronts where, like a pop up, like a pop up, but even a sustainable one that only costs $1,000 a month or $2,000 a month. So you could say, what is my acquisition cost of having a space that cost me, let's say $3,000 all in a month that I use as my office space mm -hmm. in the back and that everything, and it's on Abbott Kenny in Los Angeles or it's on Montana Avenue and people can drop their clothes off and Very they can join there. And so you can look at a company called The Stylist LA that has yep. two of these micro, yep. micro pop-ups and we're investors in them. And you're seeing a lot of brands look at, retail including amazon as a break even or a way to acquire customers right and this is where the experimentation in cac and but you have some work to do on i think establishing that this can work and that's mm -hmm. what i like about you picking 10 categories spending mm -hmm. 500 dollars, say a thousand dollars on each one mm -hmm. in inventory and then marketing those pages and learning where the mm -hmm. margin is in your personal opinion do you believe that uh, closet sharing, especially for men, there's a big enough market? I know for this man, there isn't. But for this man 20 years ago or 30 years ago, yes. So when I was coming up in the world, if I could buy a used Armani suit or Hugo Boss suit and it just cost Th a little alteration, I, I would do it. Yeah, yeah of we, course. We were just too poor. We're young professionals. Yeah, you're not going to... I mean, rich people impress. are just like... They, they. All they care about is how much time they're saving and mm -hmm. how how bad their clothes make other people feel when they wear them. That's all they care about. True. Right? They wear expensive stuff to make other people feel Fashion's, small. It's perception, right? Right. They want to wear Prada sneakers that have the little red dot in the back or the Isaiye little logo here. I got my first Isaiye uh, blazer. Uh -huh. And then I realized it's just a pin. So <laughs> I just, I stole four pins when I was at Barney's and I put them all on the, my suit supply all, suits. All, yes. So now I'm just wearing those. But it's strictly to make people feel Smart. bad. About the fact that they can't afford a three thousand dollars suit, and I can. We also have a swaggle pair. I didn't I'm do that. Give, give it to you. I later. did think about doing that though. I just thought somebody should sell the Isaiye little uh, coral, the red. You know, what I'm talking about the red yeah, coral yeah. logo. Yeah. 
Like that should be your business is just selling those. We have a swaggle pin. Uh, I'll <laughs> yeah, give it to you. Put the swaggle <laughs> pin on everything. I'm kidding. Don't steal the ESIA pins because that devalues my blazer's ability to make you feel bad about yourself. I'm joking. I'm not joking. That's kind of why people do it. No, there's some of these I are um like I just got two Zenya suits and they're incredible. But I could never afford those when I was younger. Mm-hmm. But I can see that I will keep those Zenya suits for four years or five years. And what I do is I donate them because I think, well, that's kind of cool and dope of me to donate that to somebody who maybe is coming up in the world. But if I could sell it for 400 bucks and get back 15% of what I paid for them or something and put that towards the next suit, yeah, that might be cool. Absolutely. Like I traded my old iPhone, right? Yeah. I kind of look at it like that. Same. Like Same. we truly believe that, especially men, we, we have so many clothes in our closet that we don't wear. That might be an interesting we, way to frame it access, is to tell right? people if they donate the clothes or they give you the clothes, you'll give them a $100 gift card to Barney's or to Amazon because okay. they might value the gift card more than they value the clothes. So you say to them, hey, we're going to do the Maria Kondo method with you, but we're going to give you a gift card of just as a thank you for donating the clothes. not even a gift card of swag, but something they know. Like yeah, just Amazon. here's a $100 gift card for these 10... Uh, suits you gave us just as a thank you. I'm like, oh, that's dope. I got something for them. And they're going to give them to charity or try to resell them. Great so we're going we're to try to resell them or give them to charity. This is how we're able to do the discounted Maria Kondo method. Um, and here's a $100 gift card. That's what we think the value is. So you got to have like, a little bit of cheddar to play with, but do those experiments and good luck with it. Thank you. Um, and you should definitely come to Founder University. So talk to Jackie about that. <laughs> <laughs>